ministry of uh, the Lord Jesus. And we'll read the context of those words. We'll read a few verses firstly from John chapter 1. As, as uh, John the Baptist first introduces the Lord Jesus Christ to the, to the people and to his own disciples. And then we'll read a little bit from John chapter 3. So John chapter 1. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles to, to verse 19. So John 1 verse 19 and we'll read down to verse 34. This is God's holy word. And this is the testimony of John, that is, John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And now we turn to chapter 3, and we read the verses immediately before our text, the verses 16 through 21. So John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So far, our scripture reading. As we prepare for our sermon, let's sing from Psalm 16 as it speaks of the importance of making God first in our life, worshiping him, and also the joy coming as we worship the Lord. That's what we'll learn about from our text. So Psalm 16 says us two and three.
And let's now read our text, John chapter 3, verse 22, to the end of the chapter, verse 36. So John 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anan, near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth and belong, belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's our scripture text. And after we have heard it proclaimed in the sermon, we will sing in response hymn 18. Uh, that's the hymn that uh, is about the, the prophecy or the, the song of Zechariah at the birth of John the Baptist. So it speaks of the work of John the Baptist. So we'll sing hymn 18, stanzas 2 and 3. Beloved brothers and sisters, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you happy? Would other people around you say that you're a happy person? Now, I don't mean happy in a temporary sense, like when it's your birthday and you're opening gifts or when the sun has finally comes out again. I mean a biblical happiness, lasting joy that can remain even when the sun is hiding or life has gotten hard. Are you humble? Would other people around you say that you're a humble person? Now, I don't mean humble in the modern sense where you're always talking about yourself and how blessed you are or how privileged you are to be able to help so many people. I mean biblical humility that doesn't really think much of yourself and focuses on other people and their good. Both these qualities, joy, happiness, and, and humility, are commanded in Scripture and very important for Christians. And yet there are far too many people today calling themselves Christians who have very little joy and very little humility. People are often afraid and angry and selfish. 
Well, both joy and humility are exemplified by John the Baptist, but they're also described of our Lord Jesus in our text this morning. And so it teaches us a little bit about what we are, what we are supposed to to look like, but above all, what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. And so we'll see from our text that Christ has come so that our joy is complete. And we'll see, first of all, that means that we must decrease and then he must increase. So firstly, he, we must decrease. The Lord Jesus is beginning his ministry as John writes these words. He's speaking of very early in Jesus' ministry, before, in fact, the other Gospels even start to write about Jesus' work. And by, as he begins his ministry, Jesus is teaching the people that something new and something great is coming. This is something unlike what they are used to. And that's exactly what John the Baptist also describes in our text. That someone new and someone greater is here now. It begins with a dispute between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And if you're familiar with the, with the New Testament or even the Old Testament, you'll know that purification is a huge thing for the Jews. They always had to make sure that they purified themselves, that they washed themselves before, before eating and drinking and wash all of their pots and pants. And they also had to be very careful not to make themselves ceremonially unclean. And if they ever did, they had to go through a great purification ritual. So there's so much washing, so much purification needed for the Jews. And our text doesn't exactly say what the dispute is about. But we can make a guess that perhaps ceremonial washing was, was not so important for John and his disciples. And a, a devout Jew took offense. This would later happen with Jesus and, and his disciples. You can read about that in Mark chapter 7, when the Pharisees take offense at his lack of ceremonial washing. And so John's disciples, they have this dispute with a Jew over purification, and they come to John for a reassurance. But interestingly, they don't ask him about purification rituals and and how much washing is really necessary. They talk about his ministry and his baptism. And we might think, well, what does ceremonial washing, what does purification have to do with, with baptism? Well, baptism as practiced by the the Jewish leaders before John the Baptist, was all about purification. It was for new converts to Judaism. And these new converts were baptized when they accepted the Jewish religion. And this this baptism was a symbol that their past life, their, their paganism, was all washed away so that they were purified. But John's baptism, you see, is different. It's not to purify new converts. John's is a a baptism of repentance. It's an outward symbol of people's repentance from their sins and calling people to follow Jesus, who is to come. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 19, verse 4. And so likely, this dispute over purification also ended up with John's disciples arguing about baptism. What is baptism for? Is it purification for new converts, or is it about repentance for existing believers. And this whole discussion causes John's disciples to question his entire ministry. And they ask him by referring to the Lord Jesus and his ministry. They say, they say to John, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And this question has a, a lot of bitterness in it. Because it's not actually strictly true that everyone 
is going to Jesus because our text makes very clear that there are still people coming to John and he is also still baptizing. But the thing is that as soon as Jesus has come into the same area and he has begun baptizing, although chapter four will mention it's actually Jesus' disciples baptizing, not Jesus himself, he immediately attracts more followers to himself and and his disciples than John the Baptist. And this seems to John's disciples to be completely unfair. John has been baptizing for a long time now and many people have been coming to him. Jesus is just brand new here. Why does he get more attention? And so John's disciples are wondering, is this perhaps a sign that John has in fact got it wrong? Is he wrong about purification? Is he wrong about baptism? Was his ministry a waste? Is that why? He seems to be fading in popularity and and someone else is gaining. And John's answer shows his, his great humility. He says to his disciples, verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. In other words, no, nothing can succeed unless God is blessing you from heaven. Without God's blessing, you have, you have nothing, no good thing. And so anything that is done against God's will or God's plan will never succeed, and, and that is a waste. But anything that is done according to God's plan and according to God's will is never a waste. Even if it doesn't have the success that we might wish, God blesses as he wants. We are simply called to be faithful. And so the fact that before now, John has had a successful ministry. He's baptized so many people. He's called so many people to repentance and faith and and pointed them to the Messiah who is to come. That's because of God's blessing. And if God decides to stop blessing John's ministry with outward success, with so many baptisms, that's God's prerogative. And this general principle is, is also important for us today. Many times in life, we work hard, we live faithfully, we serve God as, as best we can, and yet, humanly speaking, we fail. Many Christians have had, had farms go under thanks to the weather, or, or businesses go under thanks to the economy. Many loving Christian parents have done their best to raise their children in the fear of the Lord, and yet have seen them go away from serving the Lord. And all of these things, at first they seem so unfair, and, and our first reaction is often to be angry or bitter. We've done what God requires. We've done everything right. We've worked hard. Why don't we get the same blessings as so-and-so? Why don't we get what we deserve? It's so unfair. But we can only have what is given us from heaven. God hands out blessings as he sees fit not according to human ideas of fairness. He never promises that that hard work or, or faithfulness from a human perspective will necessarily lead to outward blessing. At least not in this life. But also in his case, John the Baptist knows that there is a specific reason why Jesus is blessed more than him. And as he tells his disciples, he's, he's told them before. He's warned them that it is coming. Because he is not the Christ. He is not the Messiah. The one whom God has, has sent to save his people. John was, was sent before Christ, the Messiah, to prepare the way for him. And so it makes sense that when the Messiah comes, he would be blessed more than John. And John uses the illustration of a bridegroom and his friend who today we would call the the best man 
A best man is extremely important in a Jewish wedding, even more so than today. Before the wedding, the best man had a responsibility to, to make many of the preparations for a wedding. And on the wedding day, it was the best man's task to make sure that the bride and, and her procession made it to the groom. But once the bride and the groom are together, then the best man fades into the background. As John says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. He doesn't have her anymore. He gives her over to the bridegroom and his task is done. But a true friend like, is not disappointed that he's no longer the center of attention on his friend's wedding day. Because that's how it should be. He, says Jesus, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice when he, when he hears him coming. He is glad to be part of this joyful day for his friend and his bride. And so it is with John the Baptist. He is the forerunner of the Messiah. It is his job to make preparations to clear the way for the Messiah to come. But now that Jesus is here and ministering, John's work is done. He can fade into the background. And John knows that from this point on, God is going to bless Jesus' work much more. He must increase, says John, but I must decrease. And so we see John's humility here. He knows his place and he accepts it. It's human nature to always want to be the greatest, to want to put ourselves first, to want to, want to see what we do on, 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 in life to be richly blessed by God with success. But that's not what God wants his, how God wants his children to live. We must know our place. We know that we have nothing unless it is given to us from heaven. All of our hard work is not really us in the end, but it is accomplished by God's strength. All our faithfulness is because God is holding us fast. And so any success that we receive is actually because God is blessing us and because of God's work through us. And so we have no reason to put ourselves first or seek success for ourselves. God will give us the blessing that he wants and that he knows that we need. And so the goal of our life should not be ourselves and our greatness, but the greatness of God. Everything we do should point away from ourselves and, and towards God. That's what humility is. As the saying goes, it's not talking less of ourselves, but talking of ourselves less, making ourselves much less the center of attention. And so John the Baptist is a wonderful example of how to think less of ourselves as he does not care now that his popularity and prestige and success fades away because Jesus is becoming greater. But even though in this instance Jesus is becoming greater, he is also our greatest example of what it means to be humble. Though he was popular for a while, both now when he starts to baptize and as he begins his ministry, in the end, his faithfulness to God meant that his followers abandoned him. And you can read that in chapter 6, as, as most of Jesus' followers eventually rejected him. And he was, in the end, rejected and despised by, by everyone on earth. And of course, in the end, saving us meant that he had to even give up his own life, sacrificing himself on a cross for our sins. And Jesus' humility is all the more remarkable because he gave all of this up, even though he deserved all the greatness and all the glory. 
because he was God and he had all the glory and all the power from eternity. And so he deserved all the success, all the prestige, all the admiration. And he was continuously good and faithful to the Lord. And yet he did not hold on to any of this that was rightfully his. But he gave up all of his glory. He gave up everything, even his life. Because that was the only way to save us. And because that is how much he loved us. And so now we are called to be humble. But our humility is actually giving up what is not really ours in the first place. Because of ourselves, we have no power or success or anything that we deserve. And above all, we are called to give up our sin so that we can follow Jesus in righteousness and obedience to God. And this too is a humbling thing. A lot of the struggle with sin is that when we give up our sin for for God, we appear to be losing out. There's a, a pleasure to sin. There's a rational argument to be made why sin is acceptable and why sin seems to be a good idea. And so when we sin, we feel like we have lost out. With lust, for example, it is obvious. There's a very real physical pleasure to indulging our lust. If you struggle with anger, you might have found that being angry gets you what you want. Do your children or your spouse not listen to you? When you lose your temper, they listen better. And so it is with all sin. There is an earthly benefit to be gained from sin, or so it seems. There's a cost for giving it up. And so part of following Jesus is that our, our sinful nature, those sinful pleasures, we, we have to give them up. They have to decrease. And to do that is humbling. Now, of course, sin only seems to be pleasurable and useful. In the end, we end up much worse. When the temporary pleasure of sexual immorality fades, we feel degraded and covered with shame. The obedience that anger gains us from those around us is obedience done out of fear. So it's not honoring to God, it's not loving, and nor will it last if we are out of the picture. And so the joy of Christianity is that when we decrease to God's glory, when we give up our our sin and our lusts and our earthly desires, we actually end up increasing. We actually end up greater and better off. As James 4 puts it, humble yourself before, before the Lord and he will lift you up. And so like John the Baptist, even like Jesus himself, we are called to decrease. We must give up our sin and its temptations and, and filling, fulfilling its desires. We must decrease in, in putting ourselves first and seeking earthly glory. We must decrease in pride. That is the, the shame of the cross, of, of worshiping the Lord, of putting our faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. True faith is to acknowledge that we are dead in ourselves, that we are sinful and unworthy and unable to do any good. But then we are able to see how everything good that we have comes from above and from God's blessing. And that's our second point as we look at how the Lord Jesus must increase. Notice in verse 29 that the Lord Jesus or that John the Baptist, in fact, does not just speak of his humility, but also his joy at the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. 
He says, uh, he, he reminds us here that that biblical humility is not a, a grudging thing. We shouldn't be bitter that we have to give up so much to serve the Lord. John the Baptist instead delights to decrease because he knows that Christ is, is so much greater. He loves to, to point to Christ in his work, not himself, because the more, then more people will know Jesus Christ and will see his, his love and his power and his humility and his righteousness. And so as Christians, we are not just called to be humble, but also full of joy. And the great thing is that our joy is made complete when we give ourselves up and make Jesus great. And again, that's the opposite of our sinful nature. When the world sees us, the scripture says, they are surprised and they mock us for not indulging our sinful lusts like they do. Peter writes about all of their sensuality and passions and, and wicked living, and he says, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. To them, we are wasting our lives as we live like prudes, as we miss out on all the fun that unrestricted sex and money and drugs and all the rest of it can give you. But true joy is found not indulging those things, but in Christ in loving him as he first loved us, in humbling ourselves as he did, in living for others. And so, when we do not just humble ourselves, but when we find joy in humbling ourselves before Christ, then we will have life to the full. And that's what Jesus Christ himself taught us with his life. And John speaks about why he should know about all these things, why he deserves to become greater. He says of the Lord Jesus in verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. And so his point is that Jesus is coming from heaven and so he is above us and so he is already greater than us. But most of all, he's speaking about why we can trust him. Because he comes from heaven, he has a heavenly view of things. He, he really knows. He can see things properly. He can see the extent of history. He knows what sort of life is a good life. And so we would do well to listen to him. Because we, he says, we are of the earth. And we speak in an earthly way. And so Jesus is coming from heaven with an, an heavenly view of things. And, and he speaks of what he has seen and heard, says John. But... And then he says, tragically, verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. And so we, we remember again how so many people, they follow Jesus, but not for the right reasons. They follow to see his miracles, but they don't truly have faith in him. But that, that end of that verse, that tragic testimony, that no one receives his testimony isn't meant literally, because John continues, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. And so Jesus speaks the things from God as coming from heaven. And so he speaks the very words of God. And so it is best, it is to your benefit that you truly listen to him. And here John compares the Lord Jesus to the, to the Old Testament prophets, like John the Baptist himself, who is the last of the great Old Testament prophets. They speak to people the words of God as, as God has revealed it to them. They call people to repentance in God's name. 
But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. And Jesus is able to speak the very words of God. Because to Jesus, says John, God has given the Spirit without measure. And so, John the Baptist himself, as we read, saw the Spirit of God descending on Jesus and remaining on him. And so that's why Jesus is greater than the Old Testament prophets, because he is God and he comes from heaven, because he has the Spirit without measure. And finally, says verse 35, because the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The point is that there is a perfect unity here between Father and Son. They love each other, they give each other everything, and they work together. That's why the Father gave the Son without limit, and that's why he can, in fact, give all things into the Son's hand. And so, much more than the prophets before him, Jesus comes from God and speaks from God and does the will of God. And so we can trust him completely. He's not just any prophet. He is witness to what he has seen and heard as God himself. He knows what he's talking about. And he's loved by God. And he has God's spirit without limit. And so those on earth must listen to him. Because he is the greatest and the most trustworthy of all of God's prophets. And so the consequence of doing so, of listening to him, is described in the last verse of our text, as well as the consequence for not listening. He says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In this verse, we again see the power of the Son. He has the power to give eternal life, so that to everyone who believes in him, who acknowledges that he truly is the Messiah, the one sent from God, that he is the the Son of God, to everyone who does so, has eternal life. But that also means on the other side, that whoever does not obey him shall not see life, and the wrath of God remains on him. And again, we see how Father and Son are united here. If you do not obey the Son, the wrath of God the Father remains on you. This is a similar idea to what we read earlier in John chapter 3, especially from that famous verse, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's a favorite verse often memorized and remembered by so many Christians, but there's a darker side to that verse that's not as quickly remembered, but it goes together. If you do not believe in God's one and only Son, you will perish, and you are condemned. And that's the message of verse 18. And chapter and verse 36 combines the two together to sum up everything that we have learned in this chapter. We must decrease. We have no power. We have no goodness. We have no obedience in ourselves. We are sinners. And the only way to be saved, therefore, is to look outside of ourselves to the Messiah whom God has sent, Jesus Christ. For he came to save the world by his death on the cross. And so he must increase. He comes from God. He comes with the knowledge of God in heaven. He comes with the Spirit working in him, speaking the things of God. And above all, he comes as the Lamb of God, taking away the sins of the world. And so you must believe in him. You must believe all of these things, that he is God, that he is man, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is your Savior. And then you have eternal life. 
But do not believe these things, and you will not see life. But even in this warning, there is good news. Notice the, the tenses of the, of the words in the first part of the verse. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. It's, it's past tense. When you believe in the present, you are immediately given life eternal. And so if you are a believer now, you already have eternal life from back in the past. This is a great comfort for any Christians who might be anxious Anxious about their future faithfulness, anxious about their possible future sins. Christians do not have to be anxious about the future. If you believe in Jesus Christ now, you already have eternal life. It's a done deal. And it's eternal life. So no one, not yourself, not Satan, not even God, can take your eternal life away from you. We are called to remain faithful, to keep believing in Jesus, but it is God who keeps us secure forever. And Jesus' blood will wash away the sins that we have committed in the past and the sins that we will commit in the future. Meanwhile, if you do not obey, says our text, you will not see life. The wrath of God remains on you. And so this warning is in the present, but also in the future. In other words, there is still hope. There is still time to repent. There is still time to stop trusting in yourself, stop making yourself great, stop indulging in your sinful lusts, and repent and seek salvation in Jesus Christ. The wrath of God is on you as long as you do not repent. But as soon as you do repent, you believe and you have eternal life. And so these verses are a call for us to turn away from our sinful ways, to acknowledge that we must decrease and, and Jesus must increase, and then we too will be saved and have eternal life. And so then our chapter is a, is a paradox. Try to make yourself great in this life, and you will be made least in the next as you suffer the wrath of God. But trust in Jesus Christ, make yourself less, repent of your sins, live your life from faith, humility and joy, and then you have eternal life, and you will be blessed forever beyond your wildest dreams. Do you believe, brothers and sisters? Amen. If you're able to, 